If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the reading of the Career Journal for this Monday, July 25th. We're brought to our Louisville listeners via Louisville Public Media. As a reminder, Radio Eye is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. Your reader for today is Rod Brotherton. Local forecast says mostly cloudy and humid today with a couple of showers and thunderstorms. Considerable clouds with occasional rain and a thunderstorm this evening, followed by periods of rain, some heavy and a thunderstorm late. A couple of showers and thunderstorms, heaviest late in the day tomorrow. Wednesday, a couple of showers and heavy thunderstorms. So it looks like a week of rain. And for today, high 85, a shower and thunderstorm. Tonight, low 72, rain and a thunderstorm. Tuesday, high 84, low 77, a shower and a thunderstorm. Wednesday, high 89, low 74, showers, heavy, and thunderstorms. Thursday, high 84, low 70. A shower and a thunderstorm. Friday, high 85, low 68. Clouds, sun, and a thunderstorm. And then Saturday, Saturday we change to high 83, low 70, mainly cloudy. And looking at the almanac, yesterday's high and low were 94 and 80, compared with a normal of 89 and 71. The record high was 107 degrees in 1901. And the record low... 54 in 1947. Precipitation for 24 hours through 4 p.m. Sunday, nothing. Month to date, 1.97. Normal being 3.09. Year to date, Louisville has received 26.01 inches with a normal of 28.74. With the sun and the moon, the sun rose this morning at 6.40. It'll set at 8.59 tonight. The moon came up at 3.38 this morning and will set at 7.13 this evening. For Tuesday, the sun will rise at 6.40 and set at 8.58. The moon will rise at 4.25 a.m. and set at 8.03 p.m. And in weather history, the passenger ship Andrea Doria was moving through fog near Nantucket Lighthouse, Massachusetts on July 25, 1956, when it collided with the Swedish liner Stockholm. The Andrea Doria sank less than 12 hours later. On the front page, it's tool time! This library wants to lend you saws, drills, and beer-making kits? (laughs) Paul Faggett believes that to make a hole in your wall, you don't necessarily need to own a drill. Same goes for the tile cutter that helped replace the backsplash in your kitchen. The eight-foot ladder you use to paint your living room, and even the large drink dispenser that served punch to 30 people at that baby shower you hosted. Very few homeowners need a shed, a closet, or a cellar full of tools when so many of the things people store are used only for one project or on rare occasion. 
That's where the Louisville Tool Library at 1227 Logan Street comes in. The new Shelby Park-based nonprofit challenges modern consumerism by encouraging a borrowing economy. Just as people should have access to the culture of books and movies through traditional public libraries, this tool library creates the opportunity to repair and maintain your home without draining your wallet, draining resources, or clogging your storage space. When you want to read a book, you don't need to buy it, finish it, and let it collect dust on your shelf. As far as Faggot and other founding volunteers are concerned, there's no reason you can't apply that concept to straight edges, paint rollers, mallets, chainsaws, and plumbing snakes, too. Four days had passed since the nonprofit's grand opening when Faggot, along with two co founding volunteers, Shelby Rutherford, Lou Lepping, and John Cooper, welcomed me into the Tool Library for a $120 annual membership or a sliding scale of one-tenth of one percent of your income, you can rent out as many as ten hand tools and two power tools each week. If you need more tools for a specific project, the volunteers are willing to bend that rule, and they'll also renew the rental after a week as long as someone hasn't put their name on the waiting list for it. The first priority is making sure anyone that wants to, to be here can be here, and the second priority is keeping the roof over our head, Rodefer said. The community has donated a few hundred tools to their cause since the nonprofit took for, first took over the space this spring. As I toured the library last week, I saw the hammers, drills, staple guns, hand saws, rakes, shovels, and hoses I expected to see, and plenty of other oddities I didn't. Think Instapots. Beer brewing kits, sewing machines, LED selfie rings, cornhole boards, folding tables, and outdoor picnic sets. Lending tool libraries aren't a new concept, and there are more than 50 that are active in the United States, according to localtools.org, a nonprofit that tracks them. In the month or so since these local volunteers introduced their concept to Louisville, They've encountered extreme generosity as people have made donations to their stock, but also questions, mostly about how they're so sure they'll see all of the rentals again. Quite frankly, they're not. Some things are going to disappear, and some things are going to break. That's just how the world works. But that doesn't mean that they should focus on that potential loss or that they can't do a lot of good in between. You have to unlearn a lot of stuff to get into borrowing economic mindset, Rudford said. You have to reframe your mind to be in a generous mindset and believe that when you put something out that someone gets something out of or that they will put something into too. It helps that the community they're serving is one that's been adding donations to the collection. All of this came from the community, Faggot said, who donated 40 of his own tools to the library. It is a lot easier for us to look at this collection and say, if something breaks and if something doesn't come back, it's not the end of the world. They've already checked out a handful of tools and started dreaming up a wish list for what they might need in the future. One woman came in with a photo on her phone 
Unsure of what she needed to put something together, they were able to give her the right Allen wrench. A few neighbors had talked about wanting to do drywall patching. One was interested in upholstery work, and they were able to piece together rentals for those projects. Another guest wondered if they had scaffolding to help replace the vinyl on a historic home. That's not something they have in stock yet, but it was the type of request that got the group thinking about what voids they can fill in the long run. There are a lot of them, and many go beyond the idea of construction. They're eager to supply tools for cleanup events and construction projects hosted by other nonprofits. They stock seeds from Louisville Seed Bank that library members can take and grow. High on the Pride loyalty list is turning the library into a space for the community. Right now, because they function on volunteers entirely, they're open only to the public on Wednesday evenings and middays on Saturday. Even so, they've set up a puzzle table in the back, and they've got a selection of books that people can borrow or read on site. They want the library to be a third space, which is a place outside of your home or work where you can participate in the community. They're hopeful. By the end of the year, they can hire a full-time librarian to run the operation, and they're eager to host classes on how to use tools they have. They want to be a resource where people can learn to tackle minor plumbing and electrical work. The group is also highly aware that many people who need access to tools may have transportation barriers. Once the library is more established, they'd like to have drop-off days where they bring rentals to neighborhoods in the south and west of Louisville. Eventually, Rutherford hopes they have enough local support to have branches in other parts of the community. The team makes a point of being community-focused and local business-focused. They're not trying to replace local hardware stores, and when their members need materials, they refer them to Keith's Hardware at 1201 Bardstown Road in the Highlands, or to Oscar's Germantown Hardware at 1515 South Shelby Street. Overall, though, the library's mission is to reduce waste, offer education, provide resources, and build community. That's what any lending library should do, they say. Having a space like this creates the freedom to discover in a way what's not necessarily encouraged in the traditional retail store. They're not worried about a profit. They're focused on helping people help themselves. Somebody can try something without so many stakes involved and cost so much, Cooper said. The benefit of a library is the freedom to browse and to gain answers, and that's the freedom of any library. I do hope that people come here with the comfortability to browse. Next, police tactics in shooting and shootout is debated. It was a hot and humid July day with a park full of players, spectators, and vendors when a shootout began between Louisville Metro police officers and a repeat felon wanted on a bevy of warrants. Herbert Lee was standing beside two people next to a court July 10th at the Dirt Bowl basketball tournament when officers tried to approach him. The police were at Shawnee Park to patrol the popular annual event that dates back to 1969 and then they noticed Lee, according to the department. 
What happened next threatens to deepen the rift between many West End residents and LMPD. When Lee realized the officers were coming for him, he fled. He ran into a field with the officers chasing him, fell, and then pulled a stolen gun from his satchel and shot at them, according to the police department. The officers fired back dozens of rounds, striking Lee at least four times. He slowed to a walk and then fell to the ground. Lee has a felony record dating back to 2008. Wanted on nearly a dozen warrants, he had been avoiding arrest for months since being charged with cashing checks in his dead father's name. Some have argued that officers needed to get him off the streets. Others contend the risk was not worth the danger of trying to arrest him in a crowded park. The reality, one expert said, is the public may not be privy to the information that prompted police to try to arrest Lee. Regardless, the police tactics used that day were highly unusual, John Jay College of Criminal Justice Professor Seamus Smith said. It was the fifth week of the base basketball tournament, with more than 200 players signed up to compete. Several vendors had been participating in the week's festivities, and people came with their children and dogs. The crowd they formed, Smith said, is the opposite of what officers want when trying to make an arrest. Usually, when serving a warrant, you kind of want to be swift, quick, and straight to the point, he said. That seemed like a really peculiar place to serve a warrant, and you don't want to create a spectacle. Simply, officers really don't want to work in that capacity to be under that kind of microscope, he added. But a spectacle is exactly what LMPD officers dealt with in the aftermath of the shooting. As they rendered aid to a bleeding Lee, people ran into the field and began to demand an explanation for why he'd been shot. Some shouted that Lee had been unarmed, though Officer Josh Pickering was struck in his bulletproof vest and the phone attached to it shattered. Many were yelling and becoming increasingly agitated, pressing in on the group of officers who held them back. Smith, who is a former New York City police officer, described the ideal to serve a warrant as early morning when few people are on the street. I've never seen a warrant served at a basketball tournament, I haven't seen anything like that, not at a public venue, he said. The likelihood of the arrest attempt turning violent should have caused officers to hesitate, particularly given the bystanders close by. Smith said he initially thought after reviewing the officer's body, foot, body camera footage. Cosmetically, it doesn't seem like the risk was worth the reward. But it leads me back again to why or what sort of intel did the commanding officer or platoon sergeant or whoever was in charge have? What were the reasons for expediting that, Smith asks. So far, the police haven't given any answers beyond the warrants. But LMPD Chief Erica Shields defended the officer's approach the day after the shooting. I think they were very judicial in waiting until the event was over, so it was not multiple individuals around, Shields told reporters today, though body cam footage released later would show many people still remained at the park. Additionally, she said, when people who have been convicted of violent felonies and who possess guns illegally 
are allowed out of jail on low bond or on placed on home incarceration, it's inevitable that we're going to have officers in a space where they're going to have to deal with these things. One spectator, Leslie McBride, said she was watching a young boy shooting hoops in the park when she heard what sounded like a burst of firecrackers. When she realized what was happening, she ran. It was chaos, she said. People were yelling and screaming and running. My first thought was, oh my God, it's a mass shooter. And there were children everywhere. Lee did have an extensive criminal history that may have prompted officers to believe he should be taken into custody as soon as possible. In 2008, Lee picked up four other teens from a Christmas party in a stolen car and then led officers on a chase when they attempted to pull him over. All four of Lee's passengers, three of whom were brothers, all died when he crashed. Lee was convicted of manslaughter, but received just one year of incarceration as a juvenile. When he was arrested again after his release, the families of the boys who had died in that crash were dismayed. It was like, Lord have mercy, Franklin Shields, whose son Aaron died in the wreck, told WHAS after Lee was charged with stealing another car in 2013. What do you say to a person that's just throwing his life away? That God has given him an opportunity to have once again and you throw it away again. What do you say? Lee was convicted on felony charges in that 2013 case, then again in 2014 and 2019. In 2020, he was convicted of strangulation and domestic violence charges and given probation. And then there was a theft and a felon in position charge in 2021, along with evading police before the theft by deception and charge of $1,900 he allegedly stole from a bank with his dad's checks at the end of the year. None of that gave officers a right to pursue him at the park, though, said Martina Kunicki, a Shawnee resident and longtime West End advocate. No matter what that young man's offenses were, it is totally unacceptable to have what sounds like an open shootout in the park with people around, she said. This is just one of many occasions when police come in like an occupying force. We need to be handling things in a more civilized manner. This has got to stop. Dirt Bowl organizer and announcer Rayvon Churchill echoed that sentiment comments he made in a Facebook Live video when he announced he was forced to cancel the tournament for a week following the shooting. Churchill told his viewers during a set-down with Mayor Greg Fisher and LMPD Chief Erica Shields, Fisher wanted the tournament to continue as planned. Shields did not. The cancellation, Churchill said, wasn't fair because of what transpired at the park was a result of the tournament itself and taking a week off meant the economic gains the tournament provided to the community would be lost. I promise I let her know what the majority of us are thinking. The police were damned if they do and damned if they don't, but I, for one, her Lee was wrong for coming, and two, they were wrong for taking it that far, Churchill said. What happened last week makes the divide bigger between LMPD and the community. Despite the pushback from the community, Smith reiterated there would be more to the situation that LMPD can or will release. 
There could be a number of aspects as to why they served the warrant the way they did. It looks bad, but there might be a bigger story on why they had to do it, Smith said. In the aftermath, both Lee and Officer Pickering survived being shot. Lee was booked into Metro Corrections and charged with attempted murder of a police officer in addition to several other charges. Later, he was indicted by a federal grand jury for possessing a firearm as a felon. All of the five officers involved have been placed on administrative leave in addition to LMPD investigating of the shooting, so so is the Inspector General's office. Next, McConnell called to resign over gun bill. The Republican Party of Jessamine County censured Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell of Kentucky on Wednesday for his support of the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, the most significant piece of gun legislation in three decades. In its censure resolution, the Jessamine County Republican Party said the bill McConnell helped pass June 24th violates the Second, Fifth, and Fourteenth Amendments to the U.S. Constitution. In a statement, County Republican Party spokesman Bob Barney called on other Kentucky County Republican parties to also vote to censure McConnell. The resolution called on McConnell to resign as Senate Republican leader and said the Jessamine County Republican Party shall cease any and all support of him. Senator Mitch McConnell was the only Republican member of Kentucky's congressional delegation to support this dangerous and unconstitutional gun control, the resolution said. There is no excuse for any elected Republican to work with Democrats to undermine our constitutional rights. Ask for comment, McConnell spokesperson Robert Struder referred to the Courier-Journal to a statement the senator published June 23rd, supporting the legislation right after Second Amendment rights the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on a gun rights lawsuit against the state of New York. The legislation that Senator John Cornyn and our colleagues assembled protects the Second Amendment. There are no new bans, mandates, or waiting periods for law-abiding citizens of any age, the statement said. What the bill does contain are common-sense solutions that are overwhelmingly popular with lawful gun owners, such as adding juvenile criminal records and mental health issues into the background check system. It also provides significant new funding for mental health in schools. McConnell's support of the bill was notable, since he historically has opposed gun control reforms. But the senator was one of 15 Republican senators, excluding fellow Kentucky Senator Rand Paul, who joined all Senate Democrats in a 65-33 vote to approve the bill. The Bipartisan Safer Communities Act was put together by some senators from both parties after a gunman slaughtered 19 children and two teachers in Uvalde, Texas in May. In June, when McConnell explained why he backed the bill, He said that it was because the legislation did not violate Second Amendment rights, as did other proposed bills in the past. Bipartisan talks had started up after horrifying mass murder incidents in the past, but collapsed when the Senate Democrats insisted on attacking the Second Amendment, he said in a statement after the June 24th vote. This time was different 
because Democrats finally moved our way and accepted the reality that Americans do not have to choose between their constitutional rights and safer communities. But Barney disagreed, saying the bill violates the Second Amendment and that it gives the monetary means to support red flag laws that violate due process rights guaranteed in the Constitution. Paul, who's up for re-election this year, voted no on the bill after citing concerns about financial support it would provide for state-level red flag laws, although he did suggest it's required review of a young person's juvenile criminal record as part of their background check to buy a gun is reasonable. Among other things, the Senate bill would close the boyfriend loop for gun purchases. This prevents people convicted of misdemeanor-level domestic violence against someone with whom they have or recently had a dating relationship from legally getting a gun. It does allow them to eventually regain legal permission to buy guns if they meet certain requirements. Two, provide grant money for states that enact red flag laws, which permit the court-authorized removal of guns from someone who's found to be a danger to themselves or others, as long as those laws meet certain due process requirements. States that don't want to adopt such law, alternatively, could use the funds for other crisis intervention efforts. Three, strengthen background check requirements for people under age 21 before they're cleared to buy a gun. And four, devote about $15 billion of federal money toward mental health and school security efforts in the U.S. Next, U.S.'s largest reservoir losing water rapidly. Water levels at Lake Mead continue to fall to record lows as drought takes an ever-deepening toll on the Colorado River. And now a series of satellite images released by NASA shows the dramatic loss of the past two decades. The reservoir on the Arizona-Nevada border sets at 27% of capacity, the lowest level since 1937, shortly after the completion of Hoover Dam. The lake's water levels have fallen nearly 160 feet since July of 2000 and 26 feet since July of 2021. The NASA images show the lake narrowing and shortening as it has receded over 22 years. Losses on the Overton Arm, a part of the lake that stretches toward the Virgin and Muddy Rivers in Nevada, appear especially grim on the satellite images. A third image, taken a year ago, illustrates the rapid rate of decline, which has forced a newly urgent response from the federal government and the seven states that draw water from the Colorado. The U.S. Reclamation Commissioner warned the states earlier this summer that the losses on the river system meant water users would need to make more immediate cuts to protect future supplies and power generation at both Hoover Dam and Glen Canyon Dam, which backs up Lake Powell upstream. Punishing drought conditions have pushed the two reservoirs to record lows and threatened not only water supplies and power production, but also tourism and wildlife habitat in the Grand Canyon. In August, the Bureau of Reclamation will release a series of projections for 2023 that could trigger deep, even deeper cuts, but the states are under pressure to act much sooner. The federal government 
could step in with its own plan if the states fail to reach an agreement. Lake Mead's declining levels are clearly visible in the canyon walls around the reservoir near Hoover Dam. The so-called bathtub ring, rock surfaces that were once underwater, has been growing steadily. As the shores retreat, the National Park Service and concession operators have been forced to repeatedly move their boat docks and ramps. Many such facilities have closed altogether. And this concludes the readings for the first section of the Courier-Journal for this Monday, July 25th. Stay tuned for the Metro section to follow immediately. Your reader has been Rod Brotherton. Now to continue reading from the Courier-Journal for Monday, July 25th. Return to the Metro section. Your reader is Vicki Trupiano. We'll read the obituaries first, and we read the name, the age, and the location. If you would like further information on any of the obituaries, please call us during the weekdays at 859-422-6390, and we'll be glad to read the entire obituary for you. I'll repeat that number at the end of the listings. Laverne Bennett, 87, Russell Springs. Tammy Jean Bryant, 54, Munfordville. Billy Sue Klein, 92, Sellersburg. Harold Clayton Coffey, 90, Louisville. James A. Estes, 94, Lexington. Monty R. Stepro Flickner, 90, New Middletown. Clifton Hale, 62, Liberty. Joanne Heath, 80, Upton. Stephanie Ann Hutchins, 9, I'm sorry, 44, Louisville. Norma Ellen Lawson House, 95, Palmyra. Gail Jensick, 64, Radcliffe. Mr. Timothy Ray Shermer, 71, Milton. Cindy Shorelock, 61, Louisville. Nolan Stephen Smiley, 73, Beaver Dam. Patrick Sean Stivers, 56, Brandenburg, and Sharon A. Sullivan, 78, Louisville. Again, if you would like any further information on any of the listings, please call us at 859-422-6390 during the weekdays, and we'll be glad to read the entire obituary for you. The first article comes from Bruce Schreiner of the Associated Press. Kentucky jilted by steelmaker? Question mark. A steel producer has announced plans to build and operate an aluminum mill in the southeastern United States after reaching a deal with the company that so far has failed to deliver on its promise to put the plant in Kentucky, even with financial backing from the state. The announcement this week was the latest chapter in what has been a long, tortuous effort to build a new aluminum plant in an Appalachian region struggling to create jobs. Steel Dynamics, Inc. said this week that its board approved plans to move ahead with construction of the $1.9 billion plant, though it did not specify where other than to say it will be somewhere in the southeast. Steel Dynamics said it will own more than 94% of the facility through a joint venture arrangement with Unity Aluminum. 
The Steel Dynamics plan is much larger in size and scope than what Unity had contemplated, and a Unity spokesperson offered assurances that the state of Kentucky will recoup its investment. Unity, formerly known as Brady Industries, had intended to build an aluminum mill near Ashland in northeastern Kentucky, but struggled for years to line up sufficient financing for the project. The Ashland area site, about 240 acres, 97 hectares, is insufficient to meet the size and scope requirements of the new project, a Unity spokesperson told the Associated Press on Wednesday. Steel Dynamics did not respond to emails and calls seeking comment on where its new mill would be located. Kentucky Governor Andy Beshear's administration made a pitch to try to retain the project. The state's Economic Development Cabinet has not been approached by Steel Dynamics, but a cabinet spokesman said Wednesday that we are actively reaching out to discuss possibilities. Unity's plan to build in Kentucky was a pet project of the Democratic governor's predecessor. Indiana-based Steel Dynamics said Tuesday that investment for its project is estimated to reach $2.2 billion, which includes two supporting aluminum slab centers to be built elsewhere. Commercial production is planned to begin in early 2025, the company said. We are incredibly excited to announce this meaningful growth opportunity, which is aligned with our existing business and operational expertise. Mark D. Millett, chairman and CEO of Steel Dynamics, said in a news release, Unity Aluminum promised in 2017 to build the aluminum plant near Ashland and to hire 550 people. The region has lost thousands of jobs amid declines in the coal industry and manufacturing. The company planned to have the mill open in 2020, but the company underwent a management shakeup and name change in its long and ultimately unsuccessful quest to raise sufficient capital to proceed. The Unity spokesperson said the company will have a small ownership stake in the new project. Kentucky has its own stake in the project, a $15 million investment that then-Governor Matt Bevan, a Republican, persuaded state lawmakers to approve. Frustration mounted as the years passed without construction beginning. This year, lawmakers considered a proposal to recover the state's investment, but the measure died. The Unity spokesperson said Wednesday that the state will recoup its investment when the deal with Steel Dynamics closes. The Steel Dynamics mill is expected to produce 650,000 metric tons of low-carbon flat rolled aluminum each year, nearly double the original proposal for the Kentucky location, the Unity spokesperson said. Steel Dynamics also hopes customers will locate operations at the mill site to save money, also contributing to the need for more space, the Unity spokesperson said. As for Unity's role, Steel Dynamics said Unity employees will provide expertise to the project. Steel Dynamics said the plant will supply the beverage, automotive, and common alloy industrial sectors. It pointed to a substantial and growing supply deficit in the North American flat-rolled aluminum industry 
based on growing demand from the automotive and beverage industries, and a significant number of its steel customers also have demand for aluminum, it said. The project will be funded with available cash and cash flow from operations, the company said. Steel Dynamics said it will completely own the two supporting recycled aluminum slab centers, one to be built in the southwestern U.S. and the other in Mexico. The next article it regards the West End report discusses concerns about TIF, T-I-F, suggestions aimed to help not displace residents. And this is from Billy Coben of the Louisville Courier-Journal, USA Today Network. A report that the Louisville Urban League commissioned and released this month on the West End Opportunity Partnership urges leaders to partner with current residents, metro government, and nonprofits to ensure the tax increment financing district helps rather than displaces those living in the area's historic, predominantly black neighborhoods. The Urban League's 127-page report on the TIF, which has garnered some controversy amid criticism, it could force out longtime residents in the nine West End neighborhoods, was put together by Barry Kornstein, a Louisville consultant who specializes in economic and fiscal impact studies. A bipartisan group of state legislators created the West End TIF over some objections from Jefferson County lawmakers during the 2021 legislative session with the West End Opportunity Partnership, a 21-seat board that oversees the TIF district forming as well. Over the next 20 years, 80% of new tax revenue generated above a 2021 benchmark will be at the board's disposal to reinvest into the community. This could take many forms, such as business loans, financing for affordable rental units, and home improvements for current owners. The quickness with which this happened and the lack of extensive public vetting has understandably brought much suspicion, the Urban League report says. Fast forward to last month, and the partnership met at school to raise $10 million in private funding with $10 million from the state and $10 million from Metro Council, giving it $30 million to start with. But some residents have signed a petition and showed up at meetings to oppose the TIF district, primarily citing concerns about gentrification and displacement of existing residents who may get priced out if property values and rental prices rise in the future. Everybody wants improvement, and that takes investment, which the WEOP is supposed to bring, the Urban League report says. But what people want is improvement that results in their neighborhood becoming a better version of their neighborhood. In short, people want investment they can be invested in. The report stresses that inclusionary zoning will be needed to support rather than displace current residents and businesses in the West End, and it advocates for the presence of community land trusts, which are resident-led nonprofits that develop permanent affordable housing and other assets. It also encourages leaders to work with Louisville Metro government and local nonprofits 
such as by creating more parks and open spaces in the West End, catering to local neighborhood plans, and helping with home repairs, rental assistance, and the cleanup of over 30 brownfield sites, among other areas. And the report says Metro government could set a higher punitive tax rate for abandoned and vacant property to encourage their owners to either put the property back into productive use or sell it to someone who will. The report says things like linkage fees on commercial and light manufacturing buildings that do not contain housing could boost affordable housing development in the TIF district. A 2% linkage fee, a million, $1 million development, would, le would yield $20,000, which the report says is enough, combined with other financing, to create a unit of affordable housing. Additionally, the report recommends partnerships with local institutions to create long-term jobs for West End residents through the new TIF especially via cooperation with construction-related firms. Other recommendations from the Urban League Commission report include keep a record of the property tax assessment and payment of every residential property in the West End for 2021, partner with and subsidize the cost of one or more tax preparation services in order to achieve maximum reach, Piggyback on programs like L. Holmes' existing property tax assistance loan program and advertise and stir people, stir people to them. WEOP should subsidize the tax increment portion of any such property tax assistance loan since homemakers should, homeowners should not have interest payments taken out of their tax credit. All project financing plans should provide adequate funds for ongoing maintenance and repair, as well as any wraparound services that might be offered to lower-income residents, most likely for its entire 20-year term, but certainly during the first half of that, income, occupational, and sales taxes will need to be the real drivers of the tax increment, and they depend upon the development of employment centers and population growth, the report also adds. But even with better and newer housing stock and improved amenities, population growth is not likely to be large enough to generate enough tax increment revenue to cover all the projects the WEOP might want to undertake. It also encourages including well-defined consequences should staff or board members fail to make their communications and WEOP documents public. Early in July, the WEOP announced West End resident Laura Douglas who has several decades of corporate, legal, and nonprofit experience as its interim president and CEO. With roughly $30 million on hand, thanks to the funding from local, state, and private sources, the group said in a news release its board can now begin the process of identifying investment opportunities that promote economic growth and long-term well-being of the community. The WEOP released a list showing its top donors as including 
the James Graham Brown Foundation, $2.5 million, Churchill Downs, $1 million, Jewish Heritage Fund for Excellence, $1 million, and an angel donor, $1.5 million, with numerous other companies like UPS and Yum Brands and individuals contributing between $30,000 and $500,000. Douglas later told the Courier-Journal the angel donor is Mana Capital Partners, an investment firm that counts former University of Louisville basketball star Junior Bridgman as one of its founding partners. Douglas said the recuperable grant from Mana Capital Partners, which also gave a separate $500,000 donation to the WEOP, will be paid back over up to 50 years to the investment group via any future private donations to the West End Partnership. You can reach Billy Coben at B-K-O-B-I-N at Courier-Journal.com. Moving on, why Yancey would have loved his wake, and this is from Joseph Girth, columnist of the Louisville Courier-Journal. Clarence Yancey would have loved being there Thursday, a room full of people, a room full of politicians, a room full of family and friends, of which there were many. All of them talking about Yancey, which was, to some degree, his favorite subject. He was one of my favorite subjects, too. He was tall, and all in all the time I knew him, he was heavy-set and gregarious. A grizzly bear of a man, but a toothless one, with a grin as wide as the Ohio River. Hey, baby, he'd say when he met you. Didn't matter if you were a man or a woman. He, on the other hand, was just Yancey. That's how he introduced himself. The first time I met him, I asked him what his first name was, said Carolyn Tandy, a former top aide to U.S. Representative John Yarmouth and the wife of former Metro Council member David Tandy. When I told him my biological father's name was Clarence, too, he said, Yeah, I'm your daddy, she said. From then on, he was like a father to me. He called a generation of Louisville's political activists his sons and daughters. There wasn't a Democratic politician he didn't know. Longtime Democratic political consultant Danny Briscoe, who had known Yancey for nearly 50 years, was his brother from another mother. For decades, he called Kevin Holt, the sister of former Jefferson County Judge Executive Todd Hollenbach, little sister, Yancey died Sunday. He was 89. Mourners flooded his wake Thursday at Portland Memorial Missionary Baptist Church. We'd all do well to be as universally liked as Yancey. He was quick with political advice for politicians, whether they asked for it or not, and he supported them by hosting barbecues for them and including them on his Yancey's picks, tout sheets that he would distribute to voters before elections. He remained engaged in politics until the end. State Senator Morgan McGarvey, a Democratic nominee for U.S. House of Representatives, said Yancey called him a few months ago to encourage him to say they needed to talk. When I get out. When you get out, where are you, McGarvey recalls asking. I'm in the hospital, baby, was the response. Yancey distributed his Yancey's picks to stores and restaurants, 
and he was especially careful to make sure they found their way to senior citizens' homes and centers. Old people vote, he once told me. Sometimes he charged the politicians for printing and distributing his picks, and he charged them for barbecues. Don't get me wrong, Yancey loved politics, but it was also a money-making venture for him. Metro Council President David James said Yancey never asked him for money for distributing Yancey's picks. He just told him to contribute money to a youth baseball league he supported for years. Mayor Greg Fisher said when the players and teams in the league needed something, they'd call Clarence and he'd go get it for them. A couple of years ago, Fisher said Yancey called him on the phone and told him that he was getting long in the tooth. And while he thought he might live to be a 100, he wasn't too sure of that and had some pressing business. Yancey wanted the city to name the baseball field at Shawnee Park after him. Like he said, city officials promised him years before. Fisher said he couldn't find anyone who had made the pledge and didn't believe they had, but he named the field after Yancey anyway. Clarence was an operator, and he knew how to get things done, Fisher said. But in this case, he shouldn't have had to be an operator. They should have named that field for him years ago. A few days before the field was to be dedicated, Fisher said Yancey called him back to say he would need a ride to the event and where Fisher needed to pick him up. I was also happy to do what Clarence told me to do, he said, while standing outside Yancey's wake. But folks at the wake said Yancey was loved because he operated. He was normally doing it to help others. Sheila Williams recalled the time when her uncle had gotten a ticket of some sort and was late in paying the fine because he didn't have the money. It was Yancey who helped navigate the system and got extra charges and late fees dismissed for him. That's when I knew how powerful he was, she said. Part of the reason he loved politics so much is that he had a strong belief that government could help people. McGarvey. He urged people in his legislative district to apply for city government jobs and pulled strings to get them hired. He liked using his friendships to help people, and he liked people to know what he had done. Verlina King said when she moved to Louisville in 1982, the daughter of an Alabama sharecropper, Yancey befriended her when she went to work in city government and took her under his wings and helped her. When her son had legal trouble, she said Yancey went with them to court. He was like a father to me. He was like a grandfather to my son. When we were broken, he picked us up and put us back together. And so, on Thursday, Portland Memorial Missionary Baptist Church was filled with people who came to pay their respects and to tell Clarence Yancey's stories, of which there are many. Yancey was dressed to the nines. There were past, current, and perhaps a future mayor. There were judges and Metro Council members. There was a former county judge executive. Yancey's wife, Sheila, was there, as were his real children and all the sons and daughters he had met along the way. If he could have joined in, Yancey would have been in heaven. So long, baby. Joseph Girth can be reached at 502-582-4702 or by email at jgerth 
at career-journal.com. In the final article from the Metro section, Five-Year-Old Boy Dies in Pool in East Louisville, and this is from Ana Rocio Alvarez Marinas of the Louisville Career Journal. A five-year-old boy died Friday night after jumping into a neighbor's pool in a house in Louisville's East End, according to Louisville Metro Police. Eighth Division officers responded to a call about a missing child at 7.58 p.m. in the 17,000 block of Ashburton Drive, according to Louisville Metro Police spokesperson Alicia Smiley. Police found Hader Rashid in a neighbor's pool with two officers jumping in to try to rescue him. A hospital route was in place for emergency medical services to transport the victim to Norton Children's Hospital, but he died later. The LMPD homicide unit is investigating the incident, but they don't believe foul play is involved. You can reach Anna at A-B-R-I-N-E-Z at gannett.com. We have a few minutes left for um, some articles of interest. Um, one of them, Nazi protesters rally outside Florida meet. Tampa, Florida, a Holocaust center in Florida and others condemned the presence of protesters holding Nazi flags and posters with anti-Semitic imagery outside a convention of young conservative activists that drew as speakers President Donald Trump Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, and several U.S. Republican senators. Florida Holocaust Museum Chairman Mike Agel said that the demonstration represented a direct threat to the Jewish community in the area. The museum is based in St. Petersburg across the bay from the Tampa Convention Center, where the protesters showed up Saturday outside where the Turning Point USA Student Action Summit Convention was being held. Founded by conservative Charlie Kirk in 2012, 2012 Turning Point is a Trump-aligned group that organizes young people on college campuses into conservative activism. The convention attracted 5,000 young conservatives, Carrying the Nazi flag, or that of the SS, the unit responsible for some of the worst atrocities of the Holocaust, is an indefensible act of pure hatred, Eigel said in a statement. This isn't about politics or religion, it's about humanity. Turning Point spokesman Andrew Colvett said Sunday that the Nazi protesters had no affiliation with the conference and that his organization condemned their ideologies. Since these individuals were located on public property, our security attempted to, but was not permitted to, remove them, Colvett said in an email. We have no idea who they are or why they were here. They have nothing to do with TPUSA, our event, or our students. Our students, after initially confronting them, ultimately took the mature route and vacated the space. Once that happened, these individuals left. Besides Trump and DeSantis, other scheduled speakers at the Turning Point Convention included Republican U.S. Senators Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and Fox News TV personality Laura Ingraham. 
The protesters with Nazi flags clashed briefly with protesters who had marched to the convention center from a nearby park demonstrating against the overturning of Roe v. Wade by the U.S. Supreme Court. Florida politicians across the political spectrum, from Republican U.S. Rick Scott to Democratic gubernatorial candidates Charlie Crist and Nikki Fried, condemned the Nazi protesters on Sunday. This concludes excerpts from the Courier-Journal for Monday, July 25th. Your reader has been Vicki Trubiano. Please stay tuned for continued programming on Radio I. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.